0: Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is so much science in your radio holes. Uh, as always, uh, we are coming to you with a couple of amazing science stories. I have with me today, Claire, and Claire has a story that I think is on everyone's mind at the moment. Is that right, Claire? Mm,
1: well, I think you made a bit of a pun there. Yeah. Unintentionally. It, yeah. It might be on everyone's mind. Um, But there is an outbreak of another virus that, you know, that's non-coronavirus related. It is Japanese encephalitis or encephalitis, depending on who you are, where you are in the world and how you want to pronounce it.
0: I think... Go with what feels most comfortable. I've looked into mm, this, and it's okay. it's one of those things like cephalopod and cephalopod.
1: I've always read it as encephalitis, but you know maybe we should stay true to the Greek core, which is encephalitis. So okay, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, but anyway, there's an there's an outbreak in Australia at the moment. Um, there's been confirmed cases in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria. And a lot of this has got to do with the La Nina event happening um, up and down the East Coast at the moment. So I thought it might be time to have a look at this virus, what it is, how it's transmitted, what is going on. You know, it's still very low numbers, but it is an interesting one. It's a mosquito-borne disease, like so many viruses are. uh, And it has uh, caused some fatalities. I think probably about time we had a bit of a look into it
0: and tell us how worried we should be
1: exactly and how about you chris what have you um what have you brought for us today
0: well speaking of threats to life i guess um a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the extinction of the dinosaurs.
1: Oh, yes. At the you end had of a... the
0: Cretaceous period, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, you followed up on a story from a couple of years ago, didn't you?
0: I did, I did. And I gave a brief mention that there had been other mass extinctions on Earth, and the one of the dinosaurs wasn't necessarily the biggest. So I thought I should go back and fulfill my promise of talking about the other <laughs> extinctions um there are five acknowledged mass extinctions in the fossil record and clearly i'm not going to go through all of them so i thought i would discuss the the biggest one that you can't talk about them without talking about the biggest one
1: mm.
0: and then just for fun i would throw in a couple of others i'd throw in two more that actually aren't on the official list
1: right
0: yeah just to be a- difficult
1: a couple of uh, mystery extinction
0: events exactly exactly um Ooh. i don't know how you can miss an extinction event but uh, these ones aren't missed exactly they're just yeah for two very good reasons they're not in the fossil record okay well um stay tuned for that cliffhanger i guess um <laughs> on with the show
1: Chris, there seems to be another virus making headlines in the Australian media recently as more and more cases of Japanese encephalitis virus are confirmed uh, in the states of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria. We've had one confirmed death in Griffith, New South Wales. And one in rural Northern Victoria as well. Have you been reading much about this disease? Heard much about it?
0: I have. It's been on the news, and yeah, I think people are worried. Is this the next pandemic? Mm. Um. Yeah, basically.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't think it's the next pandemic, um, and certainly the experts are saying such. And there's a few good reasons to do with the transmission of this disease that will become evident in my investigative reporting. Um, but it is, it is a mosquito-transmitted disease. And I'm just interested in how much we actually know about it and how, you know, how we can protect ourselves against it, who's most at risk, uh, what researchers are saying. Uh, so today, Chris, you're along for the ride. You know, it's for my benefit, but hopefully our listeners as well. I'm going to give a bit of a background about the current knowledge um, and where we're at with uh, what we know about Japanese encephalitis virus. So let's start with how it spread because it's quite interesting. And everyone, you know, epidemiology is everyone's favorite pastime these days. So, you know, let's just go to where everyone wants to be. So it is, like I said, spread by mosquitoes, not just any type of mosquito, like with so many mosquito-borne diseases. It's a specific species, and there are a lot of species of mosquitoes out there. But mosquitoes in a particular genus, and this genus is called the Culex genus, so C-U-L-E-X, Culex, is the one that Japanese encephalitis virus is transmitted within. So one of these Culex uh, mosquitoes is Culex galitis. And this particular mosquito was actually introduced into Australia in 1999. Before then, we didn't have this particular species. It was found in freshwater ponds near Brisbane Airport. That was the first time it was sort of located. And
0: um, so it flew in somehow, like on a plane.
1: Yeah. I think it blew in right. on a plane. Yeah, yeah. The fact that it was at Brisbane Airport, um, I don't know whether they just test there regularly uh, yeah. for quarantine breaches, or whether it had it was a lot more distributed. Because the shipping they,
0: ports would be around there as well. You'd think.
1: Now, interestingly, the virus can affect a number of different animals. So it can affect pigs, uh, water birds and horses, and sometimes, you know, it can affect humans as well. But interestingly, there's a divide between, the, between you know, different animals and whether they can transmit the virus. So pigs and water birds, such as herons and egrets, you know, you see a lot of herons and egrets hanging around um, livestock, they're natural reservoirs for the virus. And when they contract the virus, the Japanese encephalitis virus, The virus can build up in their system to what's called a transmissible amount if a kulex mosquito comes along and bites you know an infected pig or an infected water bird um, then then that particular mosquito can then transmit the virus to other animals such as other water birds and pigs but also horses cattle and also humans but then if a mosquito bites a horse, or a cattle, or a human—it doesn't have a transmissible amount that oh, okay. it can then transmit.
0: Oh, so it's the it's the the water birds and the pigs are the reservoirs. Yeah, reservoirs. Yeah, yeah. and the other ones are just kind of innocent victims, I suppose.
1: Yeah, innocent
0: victims. I'm not blaming. I'm not <laughs> I mean, blaming we're the, all probably innocent yeah. victims, yeah.
1: including the cool mosquito. But um, yeah, yeah, um, okay. indeed for for um. For brevity's sake, let's let's call. Them but what you're
0: saying, it's not it's not human to human transmission. That's
1: that right. Sense. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What we know, humans do, don't build up enough viral load to transmit the virus. Um, so, unlike things like dengue fever or um, even malaria, there isn't that human to human um, contraction that can happen. Um, also important to note here is that you can't contract. Japanese and Kephalatis from eating uh, pork or any other pig meat. Um, so, but what I guess this does mean for people who are at risk of this virus is that, you know, if you're working on a pig farm or um, people who are working around piggeries and in affected regions are at a high risk of contracting this, this virus. Uh, so there is that particular risk factor. Now, if you happen to get the virus, um, most like 99% of people who get Japanese encephalitis virus, um, it, the, infection causes no symptoms. Um, and those who do get sick, most of them will experience a mild cold like symptoms. But however, in some serious cases, it can cause the encephalitis, which means the brain swells. Um, so those who have symptoms, which as I said, is a very, you know, one percent of people, um, this can lead to a Japanese encephalitis diagnosis, and the fatality rate is around twenty-five to thirty percent.
0: Oh, okay, right.
1: Yeah, so that's where the that's where the worry comes in. Um, and in terms of symptoms and what to be aware of, um, you're looking at severe headache, neck stiffness, fever, sensitivity to light and sound, and movement difficulties. So all of them may indicate a brain inflammation, um, that's, you know, indicative of encephalitis. Now about 30 to 50% of survivors of Japanese um, encephalitis have permanent complications, um, damage to central nervous systems, cognitive sensory movements, um, issues and the like. And um, I guess, as you would expect with a lot of other viruses, people who are most vulnerable and um, susceptible are elderly people, immunocompromised people, and um, those under five years old are particularly vulnerable as well to serious illness. And worryingly, there are no treatments once you have Japanese encephalitis.
0: Right, okay, wow, that Mm. is, yeah.
1: Yeah, which is um, pretty awful, but there are ways Um, to prevent the spread of disease. So those include both vaccinations and, you know, behavioural changes that you can make. So like all mosquito-borne diseases, you know, you can protect yourself from mosquito bites, you can use mosquito repellent, loose-fitting clothing, mosquito nets, you know the drill. And then, uh, you know, say you're working in a piggery or um, you're a farmer protecting livestock, Um, by keeping them away from mosquitoes, using mosquito traps have been suggested as well. And there are two Japanese encephalitis vaccines in Australia, they're quite highly effective. One's available to children aged nine months and older, and the other is available to adults. So in the last week, it was announced that Australia would be procuring around 130,000 extra doses of the Japanese encephalitis vaccine uh, and they were going to be prioritized for people working in affected areas and especially in piggeries and people who do animal and mosquito control as well. So that's some really sort of like, I guess, select vaccination, Mm. um, sort of ring fencing that's happening within the community. There are vaccinations for livestock for Japanese encephalitis virus. but they're not currently registered for use in Australia, which I find interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to talk about like the ring fencing with the, the vaccination. I mean, if it's not human-to-human transmission, then it's just protecting the people in that area. It's not mm. preventing spread of it, really. Mm-hmm. There's still going to be birds flying around and pigs flying around.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that um, because, you know, with the... With the So I'll talk a little bit about why it's spreading now and how it is sort of spreading. So it was first detected in Northern Australia in 1995. It was an outbreak in the Torres Strait Islands. It was detected on the mainland in 1998. So there's been occasional outbreaks and cases cropping up in far North Queensland. But one thing uh, the government scientists are agreeing on is this uh, spread now is um, being driven by climate change so we see la nina conditions have created a perfect storm for you know this particular mosquito-borne um disease but also saying that i guess any mosquito-borne disease you know things such as ross river fever mm-hmm. you know may also um have great conditions now as well uh so but this this perfect storm you know you've got an impact on you've You've got a lot of water around creating new wetlands, which impacts uh, wild bird migration. So birds are potentially coming further south mm-hmm. than they were. And um, you've got a lot of water, which means it's perfect conditions for mosquitoes to boom. So the appearance of both potentially infected birds and new wetlands. And you know, then you've got potential piggeries that are coming into contact with these wetlands um, means that you've got this you know um, perfect storm of zoonotic transfer of you know Japanese encephalitis. What's important to note here is that scientists are saying despite the Lanini conditions, if our climate's becoming warmer and challenged by flood events, like we're seeing, Japanese encephalitis virus will continue to circulate wildly widely uh, and, you know, like I said, it's not the only mosquito-borne virus that that will happen. But, you know, like you say, there is no human-to-human transmission. It has to be um, via those specific species that can actually transmit the virus. Be aware, take care, and I think what we probably do need to do, our government and also our scientists, need to pay more attention keep track of the spread of the vectors so the mosquitoes just keep track of these diseases because if these conditions continue to happen in the way they are then we don't know where this disease could potentially end up
0: think we're lost we're not lost not even any short-range radio signals yet except for a single very powerful radio emission of course
1: a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard
0: equipment The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling because that's uh it's mostly on the theoretical side what so far
1: across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in
0: science Alright, yes, you listen to Lost in Science, and I'm talking mass extinctions, and you cannot talk about mass extinctions without talking about the biggest one, no one. Um, this was the extinction at the end of the Permian period, it took place about 251.9 million years ago, uh, separated the Permian period from the Triassic period that followed.
1: Right. Um, it, it was the line in
0: the sand. It was the line in the, in the rock, so it to speak. It was sense. the
1: line in the, well,
0: I yeah. mean, what is sand? True. Exactly. <laughs> what is that? Um, to give you an idea of how big this one was, um, the other name for this extinction is the Great Dying. Oh um, goodness! It wiped out a lot of life, but like it a lot of like you know groups of life as well. Like, there are fifty-seven percent of all biological families went extinct. Mm. Um, eighty-three percent of all genuses or genera, uh, in the ocean, eighty-one percent of marine species went extinct, and on land, seventy percent of terrestrial vertebrates went extinct. Wow. The the most famous casualty, I guess, would be um, the trilobites, which, you know, they were these little kind of hard shelled marine arthropods that um, they were really abundant at one point. You know, there are fossils of them all over the world. in Any fossil museum, anywhere you can buy fossils, there will be trilobites because they were so abundant. They had actually been declined before this period in time. But yeah, this extinction just Killed them off completely.
1: Were they water-based? Yeah, so
0: yeah. yeah. So a lot of the impact was on the ocean, it seems. So a lot of, I mean, obviously life, you know, kind of began in the ocean and moved on to land. It's come, you know, especially the, the kind of life that we're familiar with, like, you know, animal life. Um, but uh, yeah, there's big impacts on, on the ocean life. Um, it's believed to have been caused predominantly by volcanic activity. Um, there's this thing called the Siberian Traps, which is an area in Siberia, which is like 700 million square kilometers of basalt that was kind of ejected over a period of time. Um, and with all the rock came a lot of gases, uh, a lot of carbon dioxide, um, often comes out from these things. Um, apparently the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, they're currently, do you know what they are at the moment?
1: What else? uh
0: no they're about 400 parts per million just over 400 parts per million sorry i shouldn't have asked you that question that was a trick question but they're about 400 parts 400 parts per million at the moment they're up to about 2,000 parts per million um at this point um the temperature rose from about eight to ten degrees um so huge high temperatures ocean obviously ocean acidification there was also then a just a, a drop in the oxygen amount in the ocean and some of that is due to rising temperatures um, because oxygen dissolves less well when the temperature is higher, but it seems like there was yeah, circulating currents and caused the yeah, lack of oxygen in the ocean. Um, there may have been other things going on as well. There's been some recent research suggesting that as well as the Siberian traps, there had been some huge volcanic eruptions in China that may have first led to like lowered temperatures due to like all the, you know, the stuff, debris in the atmosphere. But yeah, it seems this is incredible extreme climate change due to the gases the Siberian traps was the main thing um yes it was huge um the you know there were big effects you can see in the fossil record there were like these dense forests um covering the world and then they just suddenly stop and then you get in some parts of the world you see these mystery fibrous fossils um following the extinction which are believed by many to be uh fungus parasitic fungus feeding on the decaying plant matter so this is like real end-of-the-world type stuff. You know, this is like, wow. if you imagine these rotting forests all over the world. Yeah. But it worked out okay because the Triassic period followed it. And, you know, the surviving animals, you know, some of them evolved into dinosaurs, which then were hugely successful for hundreds of millions of years. So, you know, it life finds a way, as uh, Jeff Goldsmith has told us. So, yeah, it was a big thing for obviously all the animals alive at that time and the ones that went extinct. But, um Yeah. Uh, it led to new opportunities, I guess, is one way of looking at that.
1: New opportunities, wow! Yeah, that new is that's Finding a way the, uh... to um, explain away um, the Great Death.
0: Yeah, well, okay. For that, let me let me give you another example of the kind of thing I'm talking about with um, my second mass extinction. I'm going to talk about, which is kind of the mystery mass extinction. This one may have been even bigger, but it is not in the fossil record because the species it affected were basically single celled organisms. Um, oh. and yeah, we don't really have good fossil evidence of what happened there. And it also it's was a very long time ago. This was about 2.4 to 2 billion years ago mm. and something important happened at this time. Um, some of these single celled organisms evolved the ability to photosynthesize, um, cyanobacteria, you, you're, um, blue green algae emerged. Um and what do photosynthetic creatures do? They um let me let me let me picture this. Let me let me paint you a picture. Imagine oh, you're like a um you're like a little bacterium, a little anaerobic bacteria, you know, living your life in this kind of um warm world. Primaline. Uh, yeah. Yeah doing your multiplying by dividing that kind of thing that they do and then one of your neighbors develops the ability to photosynthesize and starts pumping out oxygen um it's not going to be great for you because you're not used to living in an oxygen environment oxygen is a very highly reactive chemical um it um and this event is called the great oxidation event um right and you see the effect of yeah. the in the um into the geology because you've got new minerals you get like you know iron oxide these mm. bands of iron oxide which is um, rust basically, um because suddenly there's an increase in oxygen in the atmosphere.
1: So that's how they know there was an extinction event. Well, because, because they I guess put two and two together around the changes in the in the environment.
0: Yeah, see, life had been around for a, say at least a billion years at that point. Um, and hadn't been photosynthesizing. And then these new organisms came along, changed the atmosphere completely. They would have basically killed off all their competitors, essentially. That's, yeah. The, that's like, yeah, it's deducing. We don't know, know for sure. This is probably what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it also changed the climate as well, as you can imagine. Mm. Um, in this case, it lowered temperatures, um, most, like, mostly due to the... Um, uh, there was a lot of methane in the atmosphere, apparently, back then. Um, and methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas, but you pump a lot of oxygen in and oxidizes, it turns into carbon dioxide and water. It's basically removed from the atmosphere. Um, and there is evidence that there was a an ice age called, which is called the Huron glaciation, which is basically glaciers all over the world. Um, there is some speculation that may have even led to a completely ice-covered earth that they call the snowball earth. Um, but this is controversial because that is a snowball earth, it's a particular kind of, state you get in climate models it's a stable state um where basically the ice reflects a lot of sunlight as well essentially it's very hard to get out of this snowball earth condition um so it's not sure whether that happened or not but um it was over a long period of time we know this glaciation took place um at least as long at least as many hundreds of millions of years as say the permian extinction was ago if that makes sense so that was like 250 million years ago It would have lasted at least that long this ice age so that's a fair bit of time when you think about it mm. um but again happy ending um new opportunities uh oxygen may be highly reactive it means it can be used by other life forms such as ourselves um, this allowed more life to evolve including um multi organisms such as ourselves so yeah ultimately all's
1: well that ends
0: well all's well that ends well which I guess then brings me to my final mass extinction I want to talk about, which is maybe not going so well at the moment. And this is not in the fossil record because it is still ongoing. Um, there's a lot of been debate about whether human effect on the environment is cast to a sixth mass extinction. Um, I guess a lot of debate, people trying to work out how many species would normally go to extinct over a period of time. Mm. What they call the so-called Background extinction rate and compare what's actually going on. There was a recent research that suggested that between, say, in the last five hundred years or so, about seven and a half to thirteen percent of the known plant and animal species on Earth might have gone extinct. So it's a very large number have gone extinct so far in the last you know, last few centuries, suggesting that perhaps we are actually in a mass extinction event. Um, now, we know that we have climate change ongoing but the effects we've seen so far are more i guess more direct effects i suppose on the environment um you know habitat destruction clearly mm. um you know as we convert land into agriculture as we build cities um over-exploitation you know species that we have hunted to extinction uh we've introduced native species invasive species all over the world um, we have spread diseases we have done a lot of bad things and we know we have wiped out a lot of species
1: it's not a great report time
0: not a great report card. Um, I guess we are, are we as bad as the cyanobacteria back, you know, in two two and two and a half billion years ago? I don't know, maybe you'd be the judge. I guess you could ask, will this lead to future opportunities for evolution, um, as we've seen in the other mass extinctions? Um, that's a bit of a bleak way of looking at it, I think.
1: It is a bleak uh, way of looking at it. And, you know, uh, potentially it, it may, but the world that we've adapted to is the world is not that world you know no. so for humans it's not
0: going yeah. to be good and those would take millions of years to recover or maybe even tens of millions or hundreds of millions of years and we know we're actually having an effect on those things you know we are selectively breeding species we are changing you know the makeup of species um so yeah it, we are not necessarily natural evolution but we are making things change by our own activities um But yeah i guess i guess the plus side with this one is um if this we're causing this mass extinction event then we have the power to do something about it as well and that's i guess something that you know dinosaurs facing asteroids plummeting from the sky um you know trilobites facing enormous volcanoes or little anaerobic bacteria facing their destructive neighbors (laughs) can't necessarily do anything about this but we have the we have the power to, to change activities and perhaps, um, yeah, prevent being another one of the worst mass extinctions. that is all we have time for this week on lost in science thank you for joining us in getting lost if you have any questions or suggestions for the team get in touch with us by email we are lostinsci at gmail.com you can send cheap tweets to us at lost in Science one on twitter or you can find us on the ubiquitous facebook lost in science is recorded at the studios of 3cr in melbourne on the land of the kulin nation and is broadcast across australia on the community radio network with the assistance of the community broadcasting foundation you can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get lost Lost in in science